This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we chart the rise of Korean style on the global stage. We also talk about material innovation with architecture firm OMA and visit an installation showcasing Sony's latest innovations. Plus, we find out about another design favourite in Lagos. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Over the last decade, Korean culture has enjoyed international appeal across the worlds of fashion, music and beauty. But how and why has the country's creative scene exploded onto the global stage? Make, Break, Remix, The Rise of K-Style is a new title that aims to answer these questions and where it may be headed next. Published by Thames and Hudson, the book combines photo essays with interviews with the creatives shaping the country's cultural and design scenes today. To find out exactly what K-Style is, Maylee Evans spoke to the book's author, Fiona Bay. She began by asking how the writer honed the list of interviewees and cultural commentators that feature in the book. For my book to have a life of itself, I thought we should really focusing on insider stories. So I wanted to identify real makers and shapers of K-Style. So a lot of people in my book, they're actually the ones who are making a trend before anyone notices. The Korean style is such an eclectic mix and it's full of contrast. So I wanted to reflect that by showing people from different sectors. And we have a lot of talented streetwear brands, including like Bajo from 99% is, who has a cult following among the LA musicians, and Ise, who are the Korean-American fashion designers who approach the Korean tradition, and then they'll reinterpret it with their own eyes. One thing I found in common was how bold and brave they are. So they are the ones who are really breaking the molds and doing their own things with a conviction and with a vision. And you spoke there about sort of the pioneers, they've got that boldness, that bravery. Yeah. I suppose for listeners, it might be useful to kind of set the landscape, like what is it that they're being bold against or mm. what is the, the cultural context mm. that means that doing what they're doing is actually quite innovative and it is groundbreaking. Yeah, so I always thought that Korea is such competitive and fast society. So there is lots of suppression and the path for success is so narrowly defined. There is a lot of stress because it has been such a rapidly growing society. The competition is just so fierce. Based on our culture, like traditions such as like Confucianism, Koreans have been always had a great yearning for learning and have very strong work ethics. So to survive in this competitive society, people have been really working hard. But these people in the book are the ones who break that mold, like the standard set by the society and their family, their parents. And I think that's actually something which resonates with the young people around the world because they see these young Koreans pioneering that attitude. And one thing was, which was quite impressive was how these young creators now arm themselves with a new conviction and new confidence and new independence. When I see young generation now, they have no baggage. They have no insecurity. They just browse whatever is cool from Europe and Japan and South America, and they will just mix it. 
the digital transformation has played such an important role. So it goes two ways. Korean youth are so internet savvy and well connected, so they know how to browse and absorb anything cool. But when they make something, there is this very democratic tool to show it to the world. So I wanted to kind of touch on this idea of just the rapid pace. Mm. It came across to me that that the, the sort of the breakneck speed that everything is happening and the sort of the consumption of different media. So. From creating this book, what have you noticed in in people that aren't flash in the pan and aren't just kind of doing lots of trends but are able to kind of carve a path that they can do in the long run? Social media has definitely has double edge. It it gives a platform for people to spread out what they have created, but the uncontrollable speed and exposure, as as Kyuhi Peck in our book describes, it can be quite detrimental how they be, can be overexposed. And it be, therefore, it doesn't last that long. What I notice among a lot of musicians in my book, of course they know what's going on out there and what's trendy, but they are the ones who really delve into on the, themselves to come up with something original. It's a good time. Korea is getting so much attention. So a lot of fashion brands, they have told me that until a few years ago, they didn't necessarily promote that they are from Korea. But these days... It really helps if people find out that they are a Korean brand. So they are really embracing it to be Korean. And there is explosive energy across sectors. So architects and fashion designers and photographers, they are working together for an, a cool project together. That's quite common in Korea these days. They feel like it's a time for us to shine. So let's do this together. And, and I was struck, actually, you speak to one designer who, who creates a lot of looks for K-pop artists and just talks about the the amount one of the costumes that needs to be made, but also the speed that they yeah. have to be produced yeah. when it comes to fashion. You've got all the elements there. You've got the raw materials. You've got the artisans who can make and produce at a really high level at speed. The textile industry was very important part for Korea's export. So naturally, even until now, in the middle of Seoul, the Dongdaemun area, we have these streets full of people who are producing garments and there are textiles available and very talented like people who are doing all the accessories. So when it comes to fashion industry, Korea does provide a very good infrastructure and also the speed of consumption, how we fashion and new trends is super fast in Korea. So if you see something worn by a K-pop idol today on a, a TV show, you'll be able to see that like produced on the street by the following day. That, that's how quickly we can, we can produce a new, new clothes. So the production is there. And increasingly, we have a lot of fashion designers who are trying to come up with their own style. Miss Chief, who does a female streetwear, told me when they started about 11 years ago, when streetwear was dominated by Japan, a lot of Japanese friends like looked down on them for like, oh, okay, so you're doing, you're starting your, your brand. Now, their biggest foreign fans are from Japan. Hainsa is another very well-established Korean streetwear brand. And now there are brands in Japan who are copying their looks. After copying all these new trends in different countries, now we feel like they are becoming a new reference. It's going to take a while for us to maybe come up with, with something people might recognize. Or that, oh, so that's, that's Korean style. But now 
so many different artists at us, fashion brands are just trying out different things. Excellent. And I've really appreciated you've got a fashion directory at the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. So the Sogu Hong, who did a fashion directory, he said he recently spent hours observing what's happening at this new department store, the, the Hyundai in Yeoido. They are the largest and most popular new department store in Korea. And normally they earn lots of revenue by selling like European high fashion brands on their ground floor. So he was curious, like, why that department store has become so successful. He went to see them and he realized that the ground floor wasn't happening much. But what was really active and energetic and vibrant was the basement floor where they dedicated the floor to the local brands. So there are lots of, like, local Korean kids coming and buying. And and he thought that was such a refreshing change. Because he has been observing the Korean fashion scenes for over a decade. And he said there were times that it was perceived that anything best and cool should be foreign. But now it's the opposite. And if there's one thing that you you hope that readers take away with them, what would that be? The title of the book, Make Break Remix, is like mantra. And remix was the word so often came out during the interviews. Because everyone was saying... Yeah, Koreans, we are very good at remixing, reinterpreting and constantly creating something. I hope that readers will realize that it's not just the like, yeah, the mainstream K-pop and K-drama, but there are so many original and interesting creators in diverse sectors. So Korean style is just beginning. It's open for a reinterpretation and you'll be seeing more to come. That was Fiona Bay. She was speaking to Maylie Evans. Make, Break, Remix, The Rise of K-Style is published by Thames and Hudson and available at all good bookstores now. Now, for another entry from our Design Favourites series. It's where, surprise, surprise, we ask a designer to share an example of what they perceive as good design. For this week's edition, we ventured to Lagos to hear from Nefemi Marcus-Bello, a product designer singing praises for the Kuali. Over to you, Nefemi. I think my first encounter with one that I really remember was on my way to high school, actually, and wanting to buy a Mentos, and then reaching out to these kiosks in traffic to pull the, the Mentos out. So I think my first recollection of this product was maybe the late 90s. It's actually a portable kiosk and convenience store that's anonymously designed in Lagos. I say anonymously designed because no one can really put a finger to who the originator of this product is. And it's mostly seen in traffic because it actually benefits people who are sat in Lagos traffic for quite a bit, who need to buy confectionaries or like stuff that they actually want to buy in a convenience store. They're held by two hands sat in front of the hawkers and the hawkers are literally walking across the city, holding them, but shifting it to one side of their shoulder so that they have vision. The weight is rested on the shoulder and both hands. 
I started to appreciate it after graduating from the University of Leeds and then coming back to Lagos to start my career as a designer. And I realized that actually there was good design around me that a lot of people in Lagos took for granted and couldn't really talk about because they always wanted the European gaze of what good design is. The way I start interacting with it now is one of knowledge exchange with the artisans that tend to make these products. For me, I think this object is an amazingly good design because it actually creates economic viability to a lot of working class people in Lagos. And then it also in itself has sort of created its own manufacturing hubs in different suburbs across Lagos. The beautiful thing about the materiality of this product as well is that it's 100% upcycled. It's made out of recycled cardboard, recycled styrofoam, and then readily available rubber bands as well. Extremely affordable to make, costs less than a dollar to make. And the hawkers who use this product actually only have to pay $1.50 to get their hands on it as well. So it's creating social economic viability and it's also found its way to give My City Lagos its own identity through materiality. Good design is heavily contextual to people, material availability, location and the cultural aspect of the product and how it sort of sits in, in a certain space. It's important as designers for us to really consider and start thinking about how we can make hyper-local products using materials that are available around us because then it's easy for people to sort of interact with these products and these materials because they're familiar with them. If you went to university in Europe in the early 2000s or like <laughs> mid-2000s, the first principle they teach you in design school is the 10 principles of design by Dieter Rams. And it sticks to you. It really does. And it becomes your grail. So coming back to Lagos, I realized that, oh wow, culturally, we're different. I think a lot of architects and designers have started looking at what it means to kind of design contextually. For me, to be honest, I've kind of tried to figure out what contemporary African design looks like. Um, and it's something that I'm heavily considering when I start designing products and how I approach briefs or create briefs for myself as well. Does a product really have to be unobtrusive or can it be actually be obtrusive and functional as well? Obtrusive design is important because there's no line between art and design, in my own opinion, in Africa. You see a stool, you don't know if it's art or if it's design, but you can sit on it and it's functional. But you can also appreciate it from an artistic standpoint. And even one of the latest products I designed, the M2 shelf, I designed it in the mindset that I really wanted it to answer this question and be as obtrusive as possible, but very, very functional as well. Nefemi Marcus Bello there on why he loves the Kuali. For more information on this special object, you can look to Nefemi's current research project called Africa, a Designer's Utopia. It's work that is sponsored by the Graham Foundation with mentorship from the Prince Klaus Fund. 
Rotterdam-based architecture studio OMA's work is highly inventive and revered across the world. Significantly, many of its innovative designs are born from the firm's research arm AMO. For proof, one can look to AMO's recent collaboration with French clothing brand Jacques Mousse. It saw the Dutch firm outfit several of Jacques Mousse's shops in a rather unusual fashion. The firm rendered the brand's gallery's Lafayette store in Paris in pillows, while the London outlet of Selfridges has now been clad in clay. I spoke to OMA partner Ellen Van Loon, as well as senior architect Julio McGarry, to discuss their materials' first approach. Julio began by sharing how the studio outfitted the London store, inspired by southeastern France. The whole process started with trying to replicate some ambience or atmosphere of Provence. So in this case, we play with one single material, which is similar to terracotta. In this case, it's terra cruda, which is something kind of fully applied on the space, both on the floor and on the walls. So it's become like this abstract room that it feels like a house because there are some elements that belong to a home environment. There is a table, there are chairs, a small living room space. But all of them are clad with terra cruda, which is kind of a material that looks like similar to terracotta. But it's not in tiles, but it's material that get applied. So there is this absurd, let's say, interior, which is, has a single monochromatic feel, but at the same time is quite diverse and not really like a retail space. And then there's the Paris store as well, Alan. Can you walk us through that one too? In working with Giacomo's, we, we ended up with one big obsession, you could say. <laughs> and that was basically trying to use one material for walls, floors, ceilings, cabinets for the whole space and and of course we try to diversify that as much as possible so as Julio explained in London we used the terra cruda and in Paris we went a completely different way and we used the pillow as the base. Can we talk about why you wanted to use this singular material? How, how did you want people to feel when they're in that space or, or, or what was the logic behind well, selecting it? I mean, if you look at existing buildings more in the south of the globe, you know, people have more, much harder surroundings. You know, you have plastered walls. But for example, in South America, I saw already many hotels where you just have had concrete beds. They put a pillow on it to make it a bit softer. So it is a kind of environment where everything is almost the same materials, almost like what we call sometimes a grotto. And it gives you a certain feel that doesn't compare to other spaces. So, so it was part of the idea to, I guess, sort of challenge people's perceptions of, of what a, a retail environment yes, could be? Yes, we wanted to maximise the feeling in that space by just taking one material and use it to such extent that you're a bit off guarded almost, you know, you feel a bit weird, but at the same time, you also feel you're in a, in a very special moment or a special room. And then, and then I, I mean, Julia, you talked about drawing inspiration from Provence, the, the, the roots of the company. Why terracotta and I guess why pillow? What's that link there? When we started the project, which was like almost a, a special research, we started looking at a brand, how the brand is perceived, how the brand represents and what the brand stands for. And I think, of course, it has a lot to do with a, a landscape and a, and a region, which is the south of France. And then from there, 
we try to sort of extract elements that we transform in a materiality. So that there was really like a studying one place and then transform this place in a material palette. And then from the material palette, we then applied to a set of different spaces. One way was an abstraction of what they are, but at the same time, like a materialization of it. Ellen was mentioning these two stores, which then the idea was also that each of them is very different from each other, because then it's kind of a rich repertoire of materiality. So the one here, it draws more with this idea of the interior, where you have this terracotta on the floor, and then all of them our approach with the idea that it can be maximized to the full extent of the space. And then the one in Paris, where it's made out of pillow, that was more like an outcome of looking at the fabric, like linen and kind of a materiality. And then it kind of ended up being a pillow, which has more like a, a finished form as an object. And then in the same way, it's applied as much as possible to the whole environment of the space. I mean, I, I want to ask as well, and, and Ellen, coming back to you, I mean, this, this approach is different to what you would typically do. Can you maybe walk us through a, a typical design approach versus how you started to design for Jacquemus? It was for me and for Julia very exciting that in this particular project, because we just saw that brand and we saw also their obsession with materials from the Provence, we had this idea of just turning it the other way around. Why don't we start in the back and then see what happens in the front? Were there new challenges, I guess, presented by starting with the material? Did that constrain what you, you know, could or couldn't make, how you ultimately end up detailing it or crafting the space? Well, it didn't restrict us, but we were forced, of course, to think about what kind of space fits to this material. What can I do with the material? Because we were so obsessed by only using one material, we did not want to have a shelf against the wall, as you normally would see in a shop. We didn't want any of that. So we had to somehow with this one material start sculpting the space so that we could make a cabinet, a chair, a table, all with the same material. And that <laughs> resulted in this kind of, you could say, quite extreme space. I mean, that sounds like a really fun way to it work. It's really fun. And in the one in Paris, it got also very funny because it's with pillows. You can imagine. We Were there made... any pillow fights, can I ask? Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. We had a pillowfied image on the on the document. On the document, <laughs> yes. But, you know, we made cabinets out of pillows, which is, of course, strange. I mean, the only thing we didn't manage to get pillows on the floor, because that would have been, of course, a bit difficult. But it, it's really this extreme, extreme taking it really true to the end and without any compromise. Working in this way, you've got obviously deadlines and the practicality of detailing it and drawing it and actually getting it built, but it does sound like a really fun and refreshing way to work. Is, is, is that something that you try and build into your practice more broadly? These, I guess, different approaches that maybe keep things fresh or help spark new ideas. Is, is that a deliberate thing or is this just a, a happy accident well, we, maybe? We always like irony. There's always a certain irony in our work. There's always fun in our work and that keeps us going so it is for us I would say also really fun <laughs> I mean I, I don't think there's really a way of, of like a standard way of approaching the project in yeah. the office so every project has a bit its own story so in this case uh, when we started looking at it and approaching it then it moved towards this materiality and then from there it evolved in what is the outcome of these first stores now and then if we look at other projects then they're approached differently and they have a completely different process so um, this definitely was fun. It was kind of also very enriching because we really kind of 
did quite some broad research. We really contacted a lot of people working on different regions, also smaller designer, people that were doing more special materials. So we really tried to sort of expand as much as possible. I think that was quite also an interesting moment. We had like big tables with a lot of samples, a lot of different materials, like many of them very hard to use, but yeah, interesting can, to sort of Of course, of we cannot test. tell you about it because those we keep up our sleeve. Okay, so there could All be more the of these in the work. Could be. <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm, this, is, this is perfectly like just dropping a little hook with a little bit of bait out there to reel us in. You talked about each project having a different process. Were there were there lessons here by you know starting with a material that you're going to bring to other projects or other work? Have you, have you seen any crossover there? Is, is there anything that you can take away in terms of how you approach this? There is always like takeaway from projects. I mean, we learn a lot when we do things, so we learn about new materials, new way of dealing with them in this specific case. I think for the both of us it was very obvious that we turned it in reversal process. But I must say, after we did this research, other architects in the office that were quite surprised and also like, oh, it's completely the other way around. So it will eventually have an impact, I think, also on the other processes in the office. There is quite an exchange also between projects in the office like in different yeah. corners so people then walk around steal samples from one desk <laughs> to another one so then you have to go and search for it on the other side of the office so yeah maybe sometimes it has an impact also without knowing yeah. <laughs> it's just happening somewhere else it's funny you say that because that's the only reason why I have a closed room in the yeah. office otherwise they steal all my samples it's high security it's high security in my office uh, we don't have the key so we just have a lot of the tables and uh, shelves exactly. My thanks to Ellen Van Loon and Julio McGarry there. The electronics company Sony might be best known for its reliable sound systems, televisions and video game consoles. But the Japanese firm's design Naus is significant too, thanks to a dedicated in-house design division established in 1961. A new area of interest for Sony is virtual production technology for cinematography. To find out more, Monocle's Grace Charlton visited Sony's installation, called Intersight, in South Kensington at London's recent design festival. I'm here at Cromwell Place, where around me are over 200 LED screens, mirrored walls and ceilings, atmospheric, moody audio and sensory receptors, meaning the installation reacts to its visitors. As you travel through the box of screens and mirrors, what you see moves with you. My fellow visitors are delighted, and a lot start to take pictures or stage photo shoots with this backdrop that changes from a forest to crumbling blocks seamlessly. The head of Sony Design's European team, Hirotaka Tako, tells us a little more. Intersight is something we want to create the stage or a space or a platform for the people kind of randomly come and then play and interact uh, together to create something kind of singular, you've never seen. And then we try to kind of combine technology and the creativity. This installation is also an example of the technology being used in film production. Instead of using green screens that actors cannot relate to, crystal LED screens display realistic backgrounds in real time, allowing actors to be immersed in imaginary scenery, be it the sand dunes or the tropical forests of an alien planet. 
most of the uh, kind of visual communication is changing to a digital display, and then you can change uh, frequently anytime updating the information. So it's really relevant technology for the future. But at the same time, that's actually changed the kind of movie industry, changing from the green screen to the actual display, and then showing the backdrop uh, where actually people, uh, the actor can play in front, and then you don't need to fly really far. Even the backside image can synchronize to the camera location and then zoom and then focus. Uh, it's really helpful for the actor to play in front of the screen because it, it feels like uh, being there. And then if you add the, the music or sound uh, together with the visual, you can be transformed. As I mentioned, the sound itself is also the Intersight installation debuted at the London Design Festival in September, an intentional choice by the Sony design team who could have chosen the established Salone Design Festival in Milan or anywhere else in the world instead. Philip Rose of the Sony design team explains why. The creative community is, is, is very large in, in, in London and, and so the, the quality of the audience and the discerning audience is very important and uh, a lot of the design media is London-based as well so it's a very different audience to, to Milan. The uh, quality of the visitor is, is very, very high and very, very knowledgeable about design which we, we like to have an engagement with. Yeah. But still I feel uh, London is still the center of European creativity. Because Milan is huge. We know that Milan is really important. But uh, of course, it's sometimes too busy. <laughs> too much kind of competition. We need to be really strong. But uh, here, it's really comfortable and really not calm, but uh, it's easy to kind of speak and communicate. For Monocle in London, I'm Grace Charlton. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.